Welcome to the Teaching and Learning Research Communities Interview Series. In these podcasts, we bring together researchers and practitioners to discuss the big changes in education as we adjust to teaching and learning in the time of COVID-19 and look ahead to the fall. Our mission is to eliminate the gap between research and practice in the field of education. My name is Will Tyson. I am an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of South Florida. Uh, my research examines uh, interpersonal and structural influences on STEM educational and career pathways out of high schools, community colleges, and four-year universities. Um, much of my work uh, also deals with kind of educational and life experiences of students with a focus on underserved and uh, underrepresented students. Uh, today I'll be interviewing Larry Plank. Larry is the director of K-12 STEM education for Hillsborough County Schools, Tampa area of Florida. Uh, he also wears several other hats uh, that we will talk about today. Um, we're here today as the guests of the teaching and learning research community. Uh, what we're trying to do is to help bridge gaps between research and practice, as well as document our collective experiences and response to the COVID-19 school closures. Uh, this episode is part of the TLRC Researcher Practitioner Interview Series, and so we're going to be focusing on uh, the challenges with respect to reopening and kind of a national perspective on career and technical education. Uh, so, um, obviously, what we're, um, we're all facing in a global pandemic, the national question that's peaking right now with respect to how to manage school closures, uh, one of the big issues here is looking at how do programs um, that um, focus on a lot of hands-on work and um, the benefit of being in classes with labs, with in-person instruction, how do we manage those changes um, with the COVID-19 crisis, trying to figure out how to manage school closures and continuity of learning um, with respect to these programs. Uh, See, so these are some of the topics that we're going to be talking about today. And Larry, please uh, please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Perfect. Uh, thank you, Will. It's a pleasure to be here uh, with you today. Um, again, as as Will had mentioned, uh, I'm the director for K-12 STEM education here in Hillsborough County Public Schools. We are the seventh largest uh, public education system in the nation, with just over 221,000 students. Uh, we have 250 school sites, and my work within the district is really threefold. Uh, first of all, internally facing to ensure that our science, our math, literacy, and career technical education teachers uh, have the appropriate curriculum that are meeting the needs of the community um, and have the appropriate training and resources to pull off the amazing job that they do uh, here with us in Hillsborough County Public Schools. And the other two components are more outward facing. And so uh, one of those is to uh, work with community partnerships and what we call the ABCs of STEM. And those are our academic business and community partnerships here in the community. Uh, so I'm working quite a bit with the University of South Florida, a tremendous asset in the Tampa Bay region and beyond. 
uh, one of the top 20, I believe, R1 universities in the nation. And we have very complex, elaborate, and very friendly relationships with several faculty members there and the work that we do here in the community that really is a model for the nation. Uh, and lastly, it's managing a lot of the assets that do come our way. So whether it's Perkins funding, uh, Mass Science Partnership funding, perhaps uh, local philanthropic projects that we're able to generate through uh, funders here in the area that meet the needs of Tampa Bay students and perhaps the Tampa Bay economy and Tampa Bay families. That last aspect of projects uh, fall into my lap as well. And I do have uh, a great team of folks that work with me at the district office in STEM and career and technical education. So I wouldn't be able to do it without them. I wanna make sure I give them a little bit of a plug here. Uh, but I uh, do know that there, there are great people that are working to uh, meet these challenges. And uh, as Will had said, as we'll get into some of the conversation today, um, you know, I think science and career training has probably suffered the most uh, in our COVID, uh, in, you know, reality uh, in the country. Um, it's been a difficult stretch. And then when we're also thinking, you know, in my lens, of course, goes uh, all the way back to, you know, our, our little kiddos in pre-K and K and how we continue to build a trajectory for career um, awareness and development, and then eventually that matriculation into a post-secondary institution, whether it be a two-year technical school or four-year university, or perhaps right into a job. So, you know, we say from cradle to grave, mine's a little bit more narrow than that. Um, I'll take them at about five years old um, and then matriculate them into their, their first jobs, um, but hopefully uh, to the benefit of the community and also meeting the, the ever-changing needs you know, of our, our national economy. So thank you, Will, for having me today. It would be a pleasure to have this conversation. Definitely. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm participating in this wearing multiple hats as well, um, both as a researcher who uh, has researched a career in technical education in the Tampa Bay area. Um, I talk a little bit at the end of the conversation about my forthcoming book, uh, but also as a parent of two boys in Hillsborough County schools and third and sixth grader who I hope will be participating in CTE programs uh, in the future. So um, how did, just a little bit of your background, kind of how did you come to this position and how did you, how did you get into STEM education and how did you become the director of K through 12 STEM education in the district? Uh, has this position always been there? Um, how long have you been in this position and how kind of how has your role changed uh, over time? So, Will, that's a great question and thanks for asking it. Um, you know, Hillsborough, as, as many folks will recall, you have know, been involved in some major initiatives over the years. And, uh, you know, one of those initiatives for, for better or for worse was working with the Gates Education Foundation, uh, where we were able to pilot quite a few uh, interesting ideas, you know, at the time. And, um, this particular position actually was born out of uh, President Obama's uh, Race to the Top initiative. And you know, fortunately for us in Hillsboro, um, you know, there were some competitive dollars that were available through the Florida Department of Education. Uh, my position in my office were actually created out of those funds uh, you know, back in 2011. And moving forward, we became uh, one of the more successful, not only storylines for Florida's usage of race to the top funding around STEM and career and technical education preparation, uh, but also that of the nation. And you know, rolling back a little bit before that, uh, in knowing what uh, you know, my role is in the district, 
Um, my background is actually in marine science, and uh, I was a, a bench scientist with Florida Fish and Wildlife uh, before getting into education and uh, moving through the ranks. You know, we always, I think, as leaders are able to look at something and say, I would do that differently if I were in that position. Um, and from that, uh, I oversaw all of our 27 high school science education programs and then uh, into the director for STEM education for the school district. So I am the first person and only person to have this role here. Uh, but it was born out of those needs and going back to like what the role is. It's, you know, working with our community partners, working with business and industry, understanding uh, the research agenda of, you know, a local university like USF, uh, being able to position our teachers and our structures on a national scene, not only to be a part of research and understanding and perhaps piloting some interesting things, uh, but also, you know, what we take back, you know, for our own institutional knowledge from all of those experiences. So, it's been a great run um, and uh, we continue to look forward uh, to those partnerships and uh, for us, uh, you know, we're well positioned within the community to make those flexible changes and I think we have a lot of great support structures here uh, in Tampa Bay and even beyond uh, that will help us make those transitions for our kids and our families. Great, great. So let's uh, move on to talking about career in tech ed in the uh, face of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, if you think back to, um, feels like a long time ago, uh, back in March, uh, as um, the district was coming up on spring break and this was kind of moving rapidly, how did you, how did you find your, um, yourself and your office uh, confronting this issue, both in terms of the district trying to move rapidly to address um, COVID-19, but also specific to career, career in uh, tech ed? So you can imagine, you know, things moved very rapidly for, for all school districts in Florida and as well as those around the nation. And I think that there were maybe a few hotspots in other places, uh, you know, that were popping up and uh, it became evident very fast that the public education system, um, and I'm using that term as very broad, like our pre-K uh, to, you know, social emotional services that we might provide, uh, family care after school, uh, of course, the, the regular K-12 curriculum, and then even connecting around adult education uh, and preparing not only those adults, but also our students for, for a career in tech ed within the community. So looking at that vast array of services, um, we were faced uh, with, you know, uh, an emergency situation. And I, I don't think that I would explain it any differently. Um, you know, we're also going through the change of welcoming in a very talented and new superintendent uh, who took over at this moment. So I can't imagine what his <laughs> experience has been uh, taking on the, the seventh largest school district in the nation right in the middle of a crisis, but he's done an extraordinary job navigating us through. Um, but what it meant for us, um, you know, the COVID closures and the realization that we were not going to be able to provide services in the same way that we had been providing services in any one of those buckets, uh, and that we had to make quick change, uh, and first and foremost, uh, to make sure that the kids are within our care can continue uh, to have some sort of educational experience. Uh, but we were also right on the cusp of spring break when all of this happened. So, you know, to the testament of the great teachers and administrators that we have here in Hillsboro, uh, all of us worked, you know, just about 16 to 17 hours a day, canceled our spring break plans, 
uh, to make sure that when we emerged out of spring break, just seven days after the announcement of school closures, that we would have a couple of weeks of online content and forward-facing uh, stuff for parents and families to engage in, and, and more importantly, for, for a platform for teachers to engage with kids. Uh, so this was in addition to you know, the existing framework of a learning management system that we had, uh, but everything had to be uh, you know, kind of moved into this, it's only going to be virtual space. And you know, for our families, we did learn a lot uh, during the first couple of weeks of COVID. Uh, we learned that uh, sometimes you know, a second grade student decides to get undressed in the middle of Zoom. And those are things that don't normally happen at school. Um, and we've also learned, you know, that phones ring in the background and people have other conversations going on in their households, even if it's from the adult side. Uh, but to, to go back, I think, to the, the core of your question, one real challenge, and I may have alluded to this in my opening statements, was, you know, for our career technical education programs or even more of our STEM-centric programs, if we want to roll back into, say, like a sixth grade robotics class or all the way up to... Uh, machining shop class at perhaps a Middleton High School, uh, how do we continue to offer those lab hands-on type of experiences that we know are you know, the core of this type of training and this type of education and continue to do so in a virtual space? And so I will say, like districts around the nation, uh, we struggled at first to figure out what that would look like, uh, but to, you know, our, our great partners that we have, and, and there are many national organizations as well that had stepped up uh, right around the same time to help out with informational videos, uh, with webinars, and with Zoom calls, and with things that we could then uh, put together as an instructional platform for our students to fit the needs of maybe our local courses, uh, drawing from not only the teacher experiences, but perhaps some business and industry in Tampa, and then maybe some national content. That was all emerging at the same time. Uh, but it was, it was up to us to procure it in a way that made sense to meet the needs of our own kids. And so while there's a lot of stuff out there, and I think the, the, the market eventually became flooded with a lot of folks really well-intended that wanted to help, uh, we were able to take kids through perhaps a virtual manufacturing center and have folks talk about what they're doing, show off the high-tech equipment, um, even though the kids weren't there physically utilizing it, um, you know, these folks were able to take kids through what it meant uh, to work in these different situations. So certainly not ideal, um, but, but we were able to tap into these national resources and local resources to put together uh, a learning experience for kids that um, I think, you know, at the end of the day benefited them, certainly not as much as we would think of traditional school, uh, but we're utilizing what we learned in the spring to move forward into fall. Okay. Uh, I think the, uh, the prospect of virtual manufacturing centers is, is particularly interesting because um, you know, what's the, the old saying, necessity is the, the mother of invention. And right now we're coming up with kind of necessary strategies that could be used to um, spur, spur innovation going forward. And so um, the prospect of having these virtual manufacturing centers opens up students to far beyond the Tampa Bay area um, going forward. And so I think that's a lot of promise uh, coming from that. And so I have, a few, I have a few questions of kind of about 
that virtual aspect um, that relate actually to my own research on employability skills um, learned in career and tech ed. But but we'll get we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, so let's, let's let's go to through this summer. You've been working on these issues, and now we're kind of in the stretch run with four weeks um, to go um, before the start of the school year. How are things going now with a lot of the uncertainty about um, how schools will open up? Um, right now in Hillsborough County, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I know what I know from the parent perspective. Um, parents are being given the choice between whether or not their child will attend in person or do e-learning or do the um, virtual school option. And so it's a really tough time on all fronts as far as I can tell. Um, Nobody really knows. You can find more anything, about the TLRC a lot of as well as finding more resources levels. and episodes from this series. How are you dealing with the uncertainty in your position? Org. And how do you communicate options to parents and students, giving that uncertainty about what's what's going to happen, not just four weeks from now, but four months from now? So those, that's a that's a that's not one question. I just want to correct you there. <laughs> Sorry about and it's that. It's going to require a wide variety of answers. <laughs> so, uh, Will, you know, on the surface, um, I think you know you, you are absolutely correct. And uh, regardless of what I say today, things may turn around tomorrow, and there may be a different answer. So, uh, at least I know I'm safe from that perspective of being held to what I say today. Uh, but uh, you're right, and it's, it, you know, here in Hillsborough, it's not any different than anywhere else, and we probably saw the recent news uh, out of California that, you know, LA Unified and San Diego Public have both decided to, to at least start school virtually. Um, other districts around the nation may have the luxury of not typically starting school until after the Labor Day holiday, so they do have a little bit more time, uh, but here in Florida, Hillsborough is one of the in fact, the, the broader Tampa Bay region does start school before even most of the state. And so, you know, as that, that subset of major school districts, you know, Pinellas next door with almost 100,000 students and Pasco and Polk, uh, when you add in Manatee, Sarasota, and of course, Hillsboro, we're talking about a million students returning to school all within about seven days of one another in August. So what does that look like and what can we promise to our parents? And as I'd alluded to in our... Our, my previous answer around a different question, um, we learned a lot in that time from March to May uh, before we sent our kids home for summer. Um, and what, what you know, I think I saw uh, from, a, from an administrator was the growth of our teachers um, and the growth of our families and the growth of our students to participate in a virtual education community. Um, is it perfect? Of course not. Uh, but we're seeing folks do things that none of us thought were possible. We're seeing kids learn in ways that none of us ever imagined should we have not been in this situation. Uh, and what we want to do is carry those, those wins and those best practices forward into the upcoming school year. And as you said, you know, as parents in Hillsboro, you have always had the option to go 100% virtual with your students, either through Hillsboro Virtual School or with Florida Virtual. Uh, but what we're trying to manage is um, how we can combine, uh, you know, some sort of smaller group or hands-on or in-face learning with the virtual assets that we've developed. 
and that is a challenge because it's it's more than just simply saying um, you know a teacher is going to have half as many students in her or his class on that day um, we, we would then obviously have to have double the number of teachers if we're going to offer those types of services uh, to to families and knowing that our state probably will not double the education budget between now and four weeks or four weeks from now uh, we're faced with those those types of challenges and how we use other district resources and our community partners to fill in the gaps uh, the other you know thing that a lot of folks don't you know, man, or, or even think about, or like how we clean our schools or the transportation matrix. And, you know, for us, we move around 100,000 kids every single day, you know, with a huge fleet of buses um, that is bigger than, you know, most cities. And how do you manage transportation knowing though that the buses can only be half full and protecting students? And, you know, how do you manage double the number of runs to schools per day? And so it's a, it's a much more complicated issue. Um, although we keep you know, the student in the learning process at the center of the decisions we make, uh, do know that there are a lot of other decisions that weigh into just the feasibility and logistical work that goes into you know, moving 221,000 kids into school buildings each day. I think another element though of what you're getting at and also comes from some of the work that we've done with the broader STEM education community connected to workforce development. And that is that STEM learning really happens everywhere. Um, and the STEM ecosystems movement, which was connected to the National Academies of Engineering and you know, Henry Samueli, who is the founder of Broadcom, uh, his work with the Samueli Foundation, uh, Gerald Solomon, uh, University of uh, California there at Irvine, you know, started building these structures within the community uh, not with COVID in mind, uh, certainly, but understanding that, you know, it's the community connections and the real connections into workforce that benefit kids alongside of what educators in school districts and systems do Monday through Friday from eight to five. So when we look at this day long and lifelong learning, um, we then better understand that all of these different assets need to be called upon in regular times to best prepare kids for the jobs of tomorrow. But certainly now in the face of a pandemic, we're relying upon these other assets, you know, coming forward to help us, uh, whether it be tours, whether it be additional things that, you know, the national level or local level folks can contribute to the education experience of our kids. Uh, that is of great benefit. And so looking forward to this school year, we're going to do our best to bring virtual learning uh, around the corner, uh, make sure that we're plugging into all the things that we have been able to learn um, and also, you know, learn from our peers. And, um, you know, there are other districts that are suffering through the same challenges that we have today. And certainly the university is, is uh, no stranger to trying to figure out what uh, instruction will look like. And, you know, I think we have a lot to learn from one another moving forward. I would suspect, uh, and I think that we all hope, uh, that more sooner rather than later, uh, you know, we're all able to enjoy school in the way that it's traditionally been. That is, that is definitely the hope. Um, so a question kind of following up on my own interest. Um, I'm the author of a forthcoming book uh, titled Teaching and Learning Employability Skills in Career and Technical Education, uh, Industry, Educator, and Student Perspectives. Uh, this book will be available, uh, be published next year. I don't know, sorry, at the end of this year by Paul Gray McMillan, the book looks at how high school career and technical education educators 
teach and how the students learn industry desired personal and interpersonal employability skills, which are often commonly called soft skills. Uh, much of what we know about soft skills and much of what's covered in the book is obviously based on face-to-face, in-person learning with the opportunity to do hands-on work in order to um, give students um, teamwork skills, expertise working on common tasks, helping each other complete skills and types of in-person social skills uh, that are needed in the workforce, as well as being kind of personally responsible for completing tasks on time, um, having that kind of personal engagement with the teacher and their peers and being able to um, kind of problem solve uh, individually as well. Um, and these are the types of skills that are really prioritized in industry as well. As we see both, as we see industry moving um, in a virtual direction as a result of this crisis, and obviously schools having to move um, virtually as a result of this crisis, how do you think this move to virtual um, adds challenges to soft skills, um, teaching and learning, um, but also possibly adds um, new skills to the table? And, and that's a great question. And I'm glad that um, you're asking it because we, we do have some solutions that I'm really excited to share uh, that we were working on even pre-COVID. Um, but also, you know, there is a new reality for all of us around the virtual spaces that we learn in and we participate in, uh, even if we're working for an employer. And I think uh, many of us, you know, I have several friends even within the ed tech uh, realm that are used to doing some of their work at home and also used to visiting schools districts and meeting with teachers and administrators and even the work that they're doing within ed tech has had to change over the past you know three months as they deal with their clients uh, but also as they're meeting the needs of teachers and trying to do this in a virtual space without having the opportunity to have you know a genuine face-to-face conversation and also be able to stand back and see how students may react to a thing that a teacher does in a classroom. So we've all, you know, regardless of your profession, I think we've all been put in a, in a new and interesting space uh, with this virtual work that we're doing. Um, now, rolling back to our kids, I think for, for many, many years, uh, you know, we've said that they are, you know, digital natives or they're tech natives, and certainly those things are true. Um, but what the students haven't necessarily had the opportunity to do is polish those, those soft skills, as you mentioned, uh, what it means to collaborate, what it means to have positive conversations, what it means to be a part of a team, aren't necessarily the things that, you know, generations that are slightly behind me will say um, are necessarily good at and certainly haven't had the opportunity within virtual spaces to, to, to become better at. And one, uh, one way that we've been looking at somewhat meeting the kids where they are um, and, you know, trying to figure out how we might build in academic, but also these team-based uh, emotional experiences for students is around esports. And so we know that, you know, esports is a very broad, uh, you know, pathway uh, for students, and certainly as an economic driver, um, we all have seen the stats, you know, around esporting events, you know, being larger perhaps than the Super Bowl, or you know, at any given moment there may be more uh, folks watching some sort of esports competition on Twitch uh, or even ESPN nowadays. 
than we might see in other places. And for us, you know, it's been somewhat of a Trojan horse uh, to go into that space and say, okay, well, let's unpack it and let's take a look at all of the jobs uh, that are available that make esports a reality. And, you know, I, I happen to, to be able to work very closely with our hockey team owner here, Mr. Jeff Fennick of the Tampa Bay Lightning and his family foundation and uh, Boys and Girls Clubs, uh, which he also funds here in the Tampa Bay community. And, you know, when we look at maybe think of an NHL team uh, of having 20 to 25 players that are on the ice and perhaps the coaches, we're not thinking about the thousands of folks that really make that franchise what it is you know whether it's from marketing to the back-end technologies that make the the arena experience you know what it is uh, what it takes to broadcast a game uh, what it takes to recruit you know what it takes to operate the lightning as a business to keep it afloat and keep it moving forward uh, what it means to the community and so when we look at esports in the same type of lens there are literally hundreds of job pathways and what the kids know though is the actual playing of the game and so through the playing of the game, what California has done, and they are a national leader in this space, uh, has been able to take you know, the esports uh, apart, so to speak, and plug uh, different elements of esports learning into some of their core content and also connected it back with what it means to be a good teammate, what it means to be a part of something larger than yourself, what good sportsmanship looks like, why we need to have those types of uh, attitudes towards one another, what it means to embrace different opinions. And this esports initiative is anchored within the regular school day, but also exists then out of school time within clubs. And so the good news for us in Florida is we've, we've, we've seen this emerge and in working with other large districts and also STEM collaboratives in Florida, uh, the STEM2 hub up in Jacksonville is another national STEM learning ecosystem along with the Tampa Bay STEM network, which includes USF and Hillsborough County Public Schools. Uh, and then the newest ecosystem in Florida base, which is the Broward area STEM ecosystem. Collectively with some of our friends uh, in Orlando, um, we're thinking of ways that we can make similar changes uh, to you know, the experiences that kids have virtually around career development, around teamwork and understanding, but also get the Florida Department of Education on board um, and understand that these are critical skills that should be built into courses and requirements for students upon graduation. That's great. That's, that's, I'm very encouraged by your answer because one of the things that I've been struggling with as someone who studies employability skills is the demands of a multi-generational workforce. And for all the talk about 21st century um, work, workforce um, and 21st century employability skills, a lot of people doing the hiring are from a generation who entered into the workforce before the 21st century. And so some of the skills that, that I see employers looking for aren't necessarily manifest in the way that they're used to. And so you talk about like um, young people now, you know, we're talking about Gen Z young workers entering the workforce. Um, their digital native ability does um, fall into the realm of esports, um, you know, online gaming, and you know, now, um, virtual education. And so how can the workforce harness those skills that these um, students graduating from high school in the coming years will bring to the table? And I think that's an extremely important issue in terms of recognizing those skills 
hiring people with those skills and utilizing those skills in the workforce? I think, um, uh, you know, again, that's a multifaceted issue as well. And I think generationally, um, there is probably more diversity in terms of familiarity with tech, uh, understanding the, the, the technologies that make our businesses go and work and operate than ever before. And, you know, I think about my own parents who recently exited the workforce, you know, within the past five years. Uh, and, you know, one of which I won't identify you, Dad, but, um, <laughs> you know, not even wanting to ever turn on a computer uh, versus, you know, nowadays when we see kids, um, you know, they're able to code program and it's second nature to them in a new language. And, um, you know, coaching from both ends into the center um, and coming up with solutions, I think, for all of our our workforce to move forward in a profitable uh, manner that you know serves our economy and allows us to thrive is really the biggest question um, I think that employers are facing right now so we we hear them continually say you know we don't have enough tech talent or we don't have enough workers to fill the jobs um, you know that are available in any given community and Tampa Bay is no stranger to hearing those types of things uh, so the approach has to be multifaceted and it is what what can we do to bring perhaps a generation of folks who don't necessarily have the same familiarity with technology uh, into the economy and what do school districts and perhaps post-secondary institutions and business partners uh, what are their individual but also collective responsibilities to do that um, that is one solution that has to be community driven. And I think that we're seeing some really great things happen uh, in Tampa, um, you know, maybe even within narrow pathways, uh, but we're seeing the community come together to retrain uh, and perhaps train for the first time uh, some of our non-traditional students, um, you know, believing that everyone is a learner uh, all the way through their lives. Uh, but also then, you know, going back to your point in the previous question, Will, you know, how do we make sure that the things that maybe the older generations are really good at, and that is understanding different perspectives and working together to, for some common good or to create something, um, you know, how do we coach the, the, the next generation into better understanding how to deal with diverse populations and not necessarily the diversity that they're used to, but, you know, this generational diversity that exists and allowing those younger students and perhaps younger people to see the different perspectives of, uh, of their elders that have to work in the same workspace to get the work done. So um, one interesting thing I think that we see is, you know, the community, I think and this is more broader, a STEM community uh, coming together in our virtual spaces. And we're seeing folks um, not be as frustrated with those of us who perhaps aren't technically savvy um, and helping them along the way. And I think, uh, you know, a younger generation that's sitting through a lot of Zoom right now or perhaps uh, go to meetings that they never thought that they would sit through are learning how to listen um, in ways that they didn't listen before. So uh, there's a lot that's going on right now. I think a lot of intergenerational learning and I think we're we're moving towards those uh, those goals, but I think we we really need to rely on business and industry and post secondary partners, along with school districts, to come up with community driven solutions to get uh, folks engaged in the workforce of tomorrow. All right, I, I definitely agree. I think that this there are opportunities in this crisis, just as the ones you mentioned, um, to 
um, build a more tech savvy, multi-generational education and workforce. And uh, unless you have anything else to add, uh, I think we are fine wrapping up here. Um, thanks again to the um, to TLRC for providing us the space for this interview. Uh, thanks again, Larry, for agreeing to uh, participate in this interview. This was a wonderful opportunity to catch up. And um, I think that um, listeners will definitely be able to benefit from your knowledge and experience. And uh, thank you. Thank you, Will. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find more about the TLRC as well as finding more resources and episodes from this series at edresearch4tl.org.